Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and uh, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Chris Smith. With me, Diana O'Carroll. And with me, Dave Ansell. Now, first up this week, scientists have discovered how they can use a new technique to make very large numbers of stem cells. Now, a big problem with making stem cells outside the body is that when you try and grow them, for instance, in a dish and using things like growth factors to make them grow, the stem cells lose their stem cell-ness. They lose their ability to turn into lots of other kinds of cells and they try and become very specialist kinds of cells and that limits their use. But what scientists this week have announced in the journal Nature Medicine, and this is Colleen Delaney, who's at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre over in Seattle in America, they have found a way to grow very large numbers of cells called CD34 cells, and these are stem cells that you can collect from the umbilical cords of newborn babies. And these cells can be used to do bone marrow transplants. The problem is that the number of them that you get from a newborn baby is so low, it's only about 10% of the number you would need to treat an adult. So how do we get enough cells? Well, what they've done is to find that if they use a chemical called Notch1, and this is a signalling protein which seems to make stem cells grow in the bone marrow in the body anyway, if you incubate these stem cells with this Notch1 signal, then you can increase their numbers. In fact, they were able to grow 164 times as many cells as you would have normally in the dish doing this. And they demonstrated that these cells do remain as stem cells. They could put them into mice that didn't have an immune system, and they would get a new immune system using this technique. They've also been able to do this in patients who have got leukaemias and are undergoing bone marrow transplants for their leukaemia. So they took 10 patients who had a very severe leukaemia and needed a bone marrow transplant, and in those patients they took umbilical cord blood stem cells, grew them up using this technique, and managed to get those patients to engraft. In other words, you put the stem cells into the patient, they go to the, the diseased bone marrow, replace the marrow that was there and was diseased before, and give the patient a new bone marrow. And the exciting finding was that in the patients they treated with this technique, then their bone marrow came back to life. In other words, started to make new blood cells 10 days sooner than using traditional techniques. So it looks like you get a much better survival advantage because the sooner that persons get their cells back, the sooner their immune system starts to work again and the, the more likely they are to have a good outcome. So a very encouraging piece of work. Well, it's a fantastic discovery and it's even better because it's going to be tailor-made to the patient as well. Well, um, something else that is perhaps tailor-made to me uh, is that I'm quite scatterbrained at the best of times, especially when it comes to organising my things. And I'll often spend an evening rifling through bits and pieces, which, of course, were filed away in a safe place. Mm. And it's said that when you're looking for unusual objects, you're not as good at finding them. So if you're security staff at an airport and you have, say, 600 bags to scan, of which 15 contains some sort of weapon, you're much less likely to find all 15. Proportionate to the number of things, searchers will make more errors if the object they're looking for is rare. As uh, lead researcher Jeremy Wolfe said, if you don't find it often, you often don't find it. And the reverse is true if you're looking for something that occurs more often, such as sun lotion, in which case you might think you can see it when it isn't there. In current biology this week, the researchers from Harvard have been looking at why this happens, and these two groups are between 12 and 13 volunteers to search through some computer-generated bag contents. And common sense might tell you that because something's rare, you need to look through more boxes or bags, and your brain just gets used to saying it's not there all the time, and so you start to miss the thing you're looking for. But the new study shows, however, that it's actually the "woo, it's there response, which happens more slowly with rare objects. And it's an adaptive behaviour, so that in terms of our 
our ancestors, if you were foraging for food, you'd be more likely to stay in areas where it was common and less likely to stay in areas where it was rare. And this could be really useful in training security staff at airports or even for radiologists looking for tumours. And the researchers say that if they spend a couple of minutes doing a simulated search for common weapons or tumours, then they might do a better job of really finding rare ones for the next 30 minutes or so. Because it re-entrains them. Exactly, yeah. How extraordinary to think that we're victims of our evolution, that uh, because we're commonly looking for things that are common, uh, it, it kind of makes looking for things that are uncommon, which is the very thing we want to do in science and we want to do it at airports, as you say, and in radiology, much more difficult. Yeah, unfortunate, but never mind. <laughs> now, a living cell is an immensely complicated chemical machine working with thousands of interacting molecules. Unfortunately, it doesn't come with an instruction manual. Now, if I'm given a machine which I don't understand, the first thing I do is start prodding it and seeing what happens. And this is what biologists have been doing for the last 100 years at least. And now one of the biological equivalents of prodding a cell is by introducing new molecules into it and then studying the consequences. Unfortunately for biochemists, a cell is uh, bounded by a membrane which is deliberately designed to filter the molecules entering and leaving the cell. If you didn't have it, it wouldn't work at all. Um, You can get around this already by genetically altering the cell to produce a molecule you want doing lots of very clever chemistry or even by injecting the molecule directly into an individual cell by hand. These are very laborious processes that only work for certain types of chemicals. Now, Alex Shellek from Harvard University and colleagues has developed a far easier method. They've taken vertical silicon nanowires, essentially a forest of little silicon spikes, a few tens of nanometers across and about 100 nanometers high, and then covered them in the molecule they want to inject into the cells. They then just put the cells on top of them and the cells then slowly settle down over about an hour um, and being penetrated by these nanowires. Once it's a bed of nails for cells, isn't it? Exactly, just like that. Um, But it doesn't seem to hurt them at all. They've grown cells for five weeks um, sitting on these nanowires and they seem perfectly happy. And the nanowires do actually go in through the cell membrane and get inside the cell. Yep, Um, they've found 95% of the cells they put on top of this forest um, show that they've had the um, chemicals being put inside them. So whatever's decorating the nanowires then basically is moved inside the cell and dissolves in the contents of the cell. That's right. They've injected DNA, RNA, RNA, peptides, proteins and small molecules into many types of cells and detected the effects of the molecules inside the cells. They can experiment on hundreds of cells at once so you get good statistical data um, in the results. And even better, the team have been able to inkjet print hundreds of small patches of different chemicals and different combinations of chemicals at different concentrations onto a slide. They can then put hundreds, lots of cells over the top and you can do hundreds of experiments all at once. Um, and they've even managed to take the cells off again, uh, off, off the um, spikes, and they seem perfectly happy. So you could, it opens up the possibility of doing more than one experiment um, on the same cell one after another. Because obviously scientists have had the ability for a while to use genetic techniques to turn on various genes in cells and make chemical markers and things but something like this that means you could put other chemicals into cells maybe toxins or things and do it in a very standardized way that means you can measure the same cells many many times over to work out reproducibly what's going on that could be really powerful i can see and you can even control the dose yeah i don't i don't know whether it'd be used in any therapies anytime soon but certainly as a way of learning about cells i think it'd be very important Indeed, very powerful tool thank you dave now 
very interesting this week. Um, I've always been questioning this because listeners to The Naked Scientist for a little while might remember me covering a story back in about 2008. Uh, a guy called Jeffrey Miller showed that if you look at lap dancers in Albuquerque, imagine having a grant to go to a lap dancing club. Uh, he was asking these lap dancers in these clubs to record how many tips they got at different times of the month. And they found that women who weren't on the contraceptive pill, so they had a normal menstrual cycle, in the middle of their menstrual cycle, around day 14, which is when you're most fertile, you're most likely to get pregnant if you have sex then, at that time their earnings went up by 200% compared with women that were on the pill or at other times of the month. So that showed that it wasn't something to do with beauty, it was something to do specifically with signals coming from the women and influencing the men who are giving them tips in the lap dancing club. Now, no one could understand whether it was because the women were feeling more, I don't know, uh, attractive around day 14. Perhaps they were making themselves look nicer or they were sounding warmer, nicer, because women's voices change menstrually as well. Maybe that was what was inducing the men to be more generous. No one knew. But now there's a study out this week which caught my eye. It's from a couple of guys at the, uh, the Florida State University, Saul Miller and uh, John Maynard, and they've written this in, in the journal Psychological Science. What they did was to recruit 37 male students. They're aged 18 to 23, so these are rumbustious young men, and they got four Four females who were not on the pill, so they had normal menstrual cycle, and they asked these ladies around the middle of their cycle when they're most fertile to wear a T-shirt every night for three nights. So day 13, day 14, and day 15 of the menstrual cycle, they wore these T-shirts. They then gave them back to the researchers who put them in an airtight bag and kept them. Then later on in the month, at day 20, 21, and 22, the women repeated the experiment. So what they've got now are T-shirts worn by these women at times of the month when they're very fertile and times of the month when they're not going to get pregnant if they were to have sex at that time. They then took these bags to these guys who they'd recruited and asked them to sniff them. But they also included some control T-shirts to make sure it was a fair test. And they took saliva samples from them before they sniffed anything and after they sniffed things because you can measure testosterone levels from saliva. And what they found was that when the people sniffed the T-shirts that had been worn by the girls when they were in the middle of their menstrual cycle and much more likely, therefore, to get pregnant if they had sex, what they found was that those individuals were rated, A, as much smelling much more pleasant when they smelt the T-shirts. The men said that smelt nice and their testosterone level was higher much higher, significantly higher, compared with individuals sniffing shirts from controls, in other words, shirts that haven't been worn by anybody, or shirts worn by girls later in the month. So this suggests that some kind of signal, which is oozing out of women's bodies and changes with their menstrual cycle, is influencing the way that men's brains respond to women, and, and it's doing that by producing more or less testosterone, which in itself is our arousal hormone, or one of them, and therefore makes you feel fruitier, for want of a better term. So women are manipulating the way that, that men feel. I think that's wonderful. We've, we've known that women do that to other women for a very long time. Women, if they live together, synchronise their menstrual cycles. No one's yet shown, and this is the first demonstration, that women may actually change the way that men behave towards women and perhaps even towards other men because testosterone makes men quite aggressive too. So do you think this could be the start of smelly t-shirt competitions or something? It, it, well no comment <laughs> uh, I obviously don't know your washing techniques but um, I, I think it's keen. an intriguing observation and it's been a, a sort of gap in our knowledge that's been needing to be filled for a little while actually. So do they think that it's a chemical released in the sweat rather than perhaps different species of bacteria that might respond to different temperatures? No one knows we only know that it's a smell mm. um, because this, this experiment isolated the women from the 
very thing that was influencing the men. In the lap dancing club, the question was, well, the men could see the women, so was there something else going on? Was it the women influencing the men? Here, it's just the smell. So we don't know what's making the smell change, but there's clearly something which is going into the men's noses and making them change their behaviour. Fascinating. Chemically, as well as <laughs> in, other, in other terms. All right, well, moving on to a, a less smelly gas. Um, we've heard about sequestration deep beneath the earth with CO2, and now here's another way of dealing with the CO2 problem, and it's copper. It's quite tricky to extract CO2 from air as it's quite a stable molecule at least compared to the other component of air which is oxygen uh, and also nitrogen as well Uh, and so most of the time gaseous oxygen will bond to a metal for example before carbon dioxide does but this new copper complex reported in the journal science this week can ignore boring old o2 and go straight for co2 and the researchers led by elizabeth bauman at the leiden institute for chemistry say that typically the problem with oxygen is that it will gain an electron more readily than co2 but this copper complex will happily donate electrons to carbon dioxide instead. So to, so to extract CO2 from the air, they put this copper complex into solution. And the researchers say that the atmospheric CO2 to which it's exposed will be absorbed. And then to extract the carbon again, they just added a lithium salt solution. Easy as that. Uh, they put a low voltage across it of about 0.03 volts. And presto, the organic com- compound precipitated out. And as a bonus, the, uh, the byproducts can be converted into useful compounds, which can be used in things like cleaning products and wood preservation products. Uh, what's really useful is the copper complex can be cleaned at the end of the reaction and reused. It's a catalyst. So they managed to do this six times in seven hours. And compared to other methods of sequestration, it's actually really cheap. And uh, there's a possibility that uh, accessible copper ores might run dry uh, not too far in the distant future. So I don't know how, how long that might last. Presumably it's energetically favourable as well. Have they done the sums to prove that, that it is actually worth doing it this way? Well, yeah, because the, uh, the voltage that they put across it to clean it, um, again, is so very low compared to other methods that you know, it's really cheap in terms of energy. Thank you very much, Diana. Right, well, you couldn't really have escaped the coverage this week of the disaster that's happened uh, in Haiti. We've heard lots and lots of reports from Port-au-Prince, which is the uh, capital city in Haiti, where they had the earthquake earlier this week. It was said to be magnitude 7 on the Richter scale, and uh, the number of people who may be dead or injured runs into many thousands. Loads of those reports have looked at the humanitarian crisis, but very few of them have actually looked at what's going on geologically. So we've invited Dr Paul Mann, who is a geologist at the Institute for Geophysics at the University of Texas at Austin, to join us and fill us in a bit more. Paul, welcome to The Naked Scientist. OK, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Could you, first of all, in practical terms, explain to us what a, a magnitude 7 quake is? Okay, the term magnitude refers to the Richter scale, which is a way to assign a number to quantify the amount of seismic energy released by an earthquake. Uh, It's a logarithmic scale, so an earthquake with a magnitude 5 on the Richter scale would be 10 times larger than a magnitude 4. So just to uh, tell you what the effects of these different magnitudes might be as as a person, the 0 to 2 level is not felt. The uh, three, magnitude 3 level would be felt, but there's no damage. Okay, magnitude 4, you have shaking uh, with limited damage. Magnitude 5, you're talking major damage. Uh, magnitude 6 is considered a strong earthquake, and that can cause destruction, especially in populated areas. Uh, Just to give you an idea of how many magnitude 6 earthquakes there are per year, there's about 120. 
Magnitude 7, which is the size of the Haiti earthquake, is considered a major earthquake with uh, damage over large areas. There's about 18 Magnitude 7 events per year. Remember that most of them are occurring in unpopulated areas, so the Haiti event is unique in that respect, and it occurred in a very densely populated area, therefore you have a lot of casualties. And geologically, Paul, what actually went on to cause this to occur? Okay, faults, uh, well, basically we're, we're on a plate boundary. We're on the boundary between a small plate, it's called the Caribbean plate, and the North American plate. And if you can sort of visualize this geographic region, this is the Caribbean. We've got uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic sharing the island of Hispaniola. We've got Jamaica off to the west. We have Central America farther to the west. So through this area runs a roughly east-west trending fault system. We call it a strike-slip fault. And what that means is the two sides of the fault are moving horizontally with respect to each other. But this fault movement doesn't occur in a steadily slipping way. Instead, it occurs with these sort of spasmodic jerking motions. These, uh, these faults, because they're so irregular along their surface, can actually store motion for hundreds of years. So what's happened in Haiti is the fault is, is basically a frozen surface. It hasn't moved since, we think, about 1770. As the plates keep moving past the fault, which is frozen, the fault reaches a point where it can no longer sustain the stresses that have built up along it. So what we think happened in Haiti was that suddenly the fault ruptured in order to catch up to the plates, which have been smoothly moving past it for these hundreds of years. And when you say energy is being stored in the fault, in what form is the energy being stored? Because obviously the plates are trying to move past each other a couple of centimetres a year. The, the fault isn't going anywhere. So where is the energy actually going and how is it being stored there? Well, the, the energy is elastic energy and it's being stored in the rock beneath the, the fault trace that we see at the surface. And remember, these, the surface area of this fault is very large because it's cutting down through the upper part of the crust this particular earthquake, uh, its hypocenter, or the, the zone of rupture at depth, was about five kilometers below the Earth's surface. So you can, it gives you an idea of the large surface area along these very irregular fault planes. But it would be analogous to drawing a rubber band back, and that rubber band is storing elastic energy to the point where the rubber band breaks, and that would be analogous to the earthquake. You made some predictions a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, that this may be about to happen. How did you manage to do that? Well, in seismology, uh, we we avoid use of the term prediction. And to really, to, to say, to predict something, you have to be able to precisely state many aspects of the earthquake, including the epicentral area or where the earthquake occurs, the size of the earthquake, such as magnitude 7 in this case, and most importantly, when exactly that earthquake is going to occur. For example, it's going to occur two weeks from now or two years from now. Unfortunately, in seismology, there is no success by anyone in predicting earthquakes. What we did with this event is what we call forecasting, much like you would do, much like a meteorologist might do on a on a weather forecast. We stated that 
we had a major fault, which we call the Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault Zone. We know this fault extends about 600 kilometers between Jamaica and southern Haiti. We know that from our GPS studies, which were done by Dr. Eric Kale at Purdue University, that this fault uh, was moving at a rate of about 7 millimeters a year. And remember, the fault itself isn't moving, but the plates on either side of it are moving at that rate. And finally, from our historical records of Haiti, we know that the last fault that, that moved, or the last large earthquake, which we think was related to this fault, occurred in the 18th century. So we take the amount of time, roughly 250 years, we take the rate derived from the GPS study, 7 millimeters a year, we, uh, we calculate how much strain has accumulated, which was about 2 meters, uh, we can convert the amount of strain accumulated to the size of the expected earthquake, which we had said was about 7.2, and, and the event turned out to be 7.0. But I think the key element here is that we did not make any statement about this earthquake was going to occur on January 12th. All we said was that this was an area of high seismic risk, especially given the existence of Port-au-Prince, a city of 2 million people very poor construction practices, and it's only 20 kilometers north of the fault. And just to finish off very briefly, uh, Paul, what's the chances that this is going to happen again very, very soon? As in, do you think this is done for now, or do you think that there's a lot more energy still sitting there and we should expect this to rumble on a bit longer? Well, one of the uh, interesting aspects of these type of strikes of earthquakes is that the, the release of strain over an area, in this case of about 80 kilometers, can actually cause an increase in strain on the adjacent segments of the unruptured fault. And there are many people now at the U.S. Geologic Survey and other universities who are working on models which are trying to predict or to forecast whether these adjacent segments of the fault will rupture and what the time frame might be. But again, with any studies of earthquakes, we have to be very careful about using this word prediction just because it is a very inexact science at this point. Okay, thank you very much, Paul. We'll leave it there. That's Dr. Paul Mann, who is from the University of Texas at Austin, telling us about the geology underlying the uh, terrible event that we've seen happening in Haiti earlier this week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.